0: You're listening to Trinity Fremont's sermon podcast, where you can hear God's Word preached each and every week. Our purpose at Trinity is to raise up Christ's followers in our families and in our communities. We pray that as you listen to this week's sermon, you'll be encouraged and equipped to live out your faith in all that you do. So to get things started this morning... We've been doing a few grammar lessons every once in a while. Do you remember some of those grammar lessons, those ninth grade grammar lessons? I think we talked about infinitives one time, we talked about participles, infinitives. No grammar lesson today. But there is a ninth grade English lesson anyway, but it's gonna be a literature lesson. Ninth grade literature. And so what we're gonna be looking at instead of grammar, we're gonna be looking at something called figures of speech here's the definition for figure of speech figures of speech are ways of expressing oneself that does not use a words strict or realistic meaning so here are some figures of speech that you are likely familiar with two of these might be metaphors or similes here's an example of a simi- of a an example of a simile and an example of a metaphor so, similes are where you use as or like to compare something. So, his golf swing is smooth as butter, and it's not my golf swing. It might be Pastor Gerber's, it's not my golf swing. All right, get that big old slice going. Okay, all right. But that's a simile, okay? Now a metaphor, you're pretty familiar with metaphors, and you use metaphors all the time, you just don't know about it, you, just, you don't realize when we use them. So metaphors are, you, it's a little bit like a simile, except it's a bigger exaggeration. So example, and you have probably witnessed this metaphor, the classroom was a zoo. Has anyone ever seen a classroom that resembled a zoo? Maybe some of you contributed to the classroom being a zoo. Am I right? There we go. I'm seeing some hands up. There we go. There we go. Well, um, now we're going to talk about a couple that maybe aren't so familiar. And And the first one, this figure of speech is called alliteration. Okay? Alliteration. Some of you are familiar. Some of you probably aren't. Alliteration is using lots of the same consonant sounds at the beginning of, of a word in a sentence. And you are familiar with both of these examples of alliteration. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, all those P's, all those consonants at the beginning. Or Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Did pretty good, and then mess up one single time. Okay, all right, here we go. So the S, the S, the consonants, and people write, it's effective to write this way, to talk this way, whatever. It's figures of speech. Well, one of my favorite, and maybe it is my favorite figures of speech, is something called onomatopoeia. And maybe I like it because it's so fun to say, onomatopoeia, okay? So here's the definition, using words that sound like the word. Bang, doink, buzz, hiss. Do you like onomatopoeia? I like onomatopoeia. But there are even more figures of speech. But we're going to focus on one in particular, a little bitty word called an idiom. Okay? An idiom. We use idioms all the time without even knowing it. Here's the definition of an idiom with an example. Idiom. A group of words or a phrase that has a meaning different from the literal meaning. Here's our example. The little boy had butterflies in his stomach as he walked up to the plate for the first time. He did not literally have butterflies in his stomach, but we know exactly what the deal is, right? He's nervous. When you get nervous, there's your idiom. You have butterflies in your stomach. We're gonna practice a few more. Let's see how good you are with your idioms. So here's, this is the first one, I'll give you a little bit of a clue, um, to be very careful with your actions and words. What do you think? There's some hints up there. I heard it. Walking on eggshells. Are you literally walking on eggshells? No. But you're being very cautious of what you do or what you say because it could get you in trouble. Someone's a little cranky in the house, right? You're kind of walking on eggshells. All right. Let's do another one. Wishing you could be unnoticed in a room while listening and watching what is going on, but you're undetected. Fly on the wall. Good job. You're getting better at them all the time. Here's another one. Lots and lots and lots and lots of rain. What is it? Raining like cats and dogs. We know that literally cats and dogs are not coming out of the sky, right? We, at least we hope not, okay? It's just raining a lot. It's raining cats and dogs. We're going to practice one more, but you're not going to get a clue this time unless you need it. I've got a, I got a clue slide, but hopefully we don't need it. Here, this, is, this is our idiom. Making sure not to give out a secret. What do you think, Callan? No. My lips are sealed is a good one. That is an idiom. And it would actually work for this one. Good. Not that one. Okay, here's a hint. Go Go for the next slide. Don't... No, no. Well, yes, 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 that works too. There's all kinds. of. Don't spill the beans, right? Don't spill the beans. Well, there are hundreds of more idioms, but the idiom we will focus on today is one that you have heard and you have said hundreds of times in your life. And actually, you said this idiom today when we did the Apostles' Creed or when we're going to do the Apostles' Creed. But you also heard it in two of our three Bible verses this morning. You heard it in one of the two. It's an idiom that we don't often consider on Ascension Day. But it is an idiom that makes all the difference in the world. So if you're like me, you have this vision of Ascension Day. And we get our vision from the different gospel versions. We get our vision from the Acts version, which is one of my favorite. You know, Jesus is ascend, ascends into heaven, and then he's gone. And then he is doing what? He is sitting at the right hand of God, right? Well, let's review that Acts version just a little bit just 9 through 11, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that's what Casey talked to the kiddos about. We're waiting for him now to come back in the same way, but the angels were telling those apostles, "It's time to get busy." Why are you look That's not going to accomplish what Jesus wants you to accomplish. You're to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, not the Spirit yet, because that's next week, right? That's next week. Pentecost hasn't happened yet in this part of Acts but go spread the gospel message. But Jesus has gone, he's he's gone not just to tell them that in a few days, this helper, his helper will come to them and they would spend the rest of their lives spreading this amazing gospel message and this helper is the Holy Spirit, which we just referred to, but that's next week, Pentecost. Today we stay focused on Ascension Day. Today we focus on his ascension to his throne. So what is Jesus up to in heaven, sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Is he just sitting there waiting for the Father to say, okay, you can go back now, Is he just sitting up there twiddling his thumbs, not really knowing what to do with himself? Well, that is not the case, and Paul tells us that much in our second reading this morning from Ephesians. Take a look at the very important idiom we profess also in the Apostles' Creed. Here we go. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you now see the idiom? Is Jesus just literally just sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, until he says, okay, go back and judge the living and the dead, go back and make things all new, create a new heaven, create a new earth. Is he just sitting there at his right hand? Do you see the idiom now? Let's take a look at what Paul had to say about this topic in Ephesians. We'll read from 19 to 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? We just sang about the power of his name, didn't we? The power toward us to believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. There's that sitting at the right hand, Enneum, again. The writers of the Creed knew its real significance. That's why they included it in our belief statement. But how often do we consider what it means for us, for Jesus, to be sitting at the right hand of God today? What does that mean for you and me? Well, you've probably heard of a term right hand man. Right hand man. Have you heard of that term before? Most of us have, okay? It's almost a figure of speech in itself. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, well, if we're going to build that, we better have a good right-hand man. Well, the Hebrew word for right-hand is yaumen, and here's the definition. It might be helpful as we figure out what this right hand of God is all about. Yaumen, a symbol of strength, and power you see the right hand continues to be a symbol of strength and power and respect even here today what hand do you shake someone with right hand feels very strange to shake someone's left hand doesn't it how about if you are listening to the star spangled banner you put your right hand over your heart. In the courtroom, maybe you have to testify for some reason. You put your right hand over the Bible and swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, right? How about a military salute? It would look kind of funny to have a left-handed salute, wouldn't it? Now that looks much better. This right hand, there's something to this right hand. In the Psalms alone, there are Fifteen instances that David and the writers of the Psalms talked about the power of the right hand of God. We're going to look at four of them. Psalm forty-eight, ten: Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm eighty-nine, thirteen: You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. High your right hand. Psalm ninety-eight, one. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And Psalm 138, verse 7, You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Yes, the right hand of God is very significant, isn't it? So, when the Father places Jesus at His right hand, it expresses the truth that Jesus has completed, perfectly completed, His mission on this earth so that you and me can have a proper relationship again to God. He suffered, He died, He rose again. His mission was perfectly completed, a mission of saving us from our sin. But that's not the end of the story this morning. The reference to the son sitting on the right hand of the father in the creed and in Ephesians and many other places in the Bible, it tells us that Jesus is still working for us. And sometimes we forget that, don't we? He's still in the business of helping and saving us. You see, Jesus is in charge of our salvation. He's in charge of your salvation. Yes, he is in charge, just like a good right-hand man is in charge of a project. Are you seeing it now? Are you seeing the importance of this idiom? Jesus isn't just sitting at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. He is not sitting around waiting for his next assignment, although he does have a big one, don't you know? When he comes back, when the Father asks him to come back to judge the living and the dead and to make things all new. But until then, Jesus is hard at work defending us, keeping us safe, saving us from our sin through his means of grace. And in the Lutheran church, we've got some awesome, awesome means of grace. What about the word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was Jesus. And you heard the word. You heard Jesus today. You're hearing Jesus right now. He's not just sitting there through confession and absolution. Weekly, you are publicly confessing your sin and being forgiven of those sins through Jesus and the power of his name, and the Godhead. Pastor Gerber says, in your sins, as a called and ordained servant of the word, your sins, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is active. And what about baptism? Bringing faith in our hearts and washing us clean with water and the word, which is Jesus. And finally, through the Lord's Supper, through His very body, through His very blood, that we take into ourselves to strengthen our faith and to preserve our faith. Sometimes we don't even listen to those words at the end of communion. Now may this body and this blood of our Lord and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, do what? Strengthen. And preserve your faith through faith in who? Christ Jesus. Who's sitting where? At the right hand of God in all his power and all his glory. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father for us, not for himself. Being at the right hand of the Father means that having received authority from the Father, Christ is Lord to help all of the saints. And that's you and that's me. I'm looking at a lot of saints this morning. In the catechism, Luther explains it this way. He explains it a lot better than I'm explaining it. This is how Luther tells us, or how he talks to us about, this significance of Jesus ascending and sitting on the right hand of God the Father. It means that having received authority from the Father, Christ is Lord to help his saints. He ascended into heaven and has received from the Father power and honor above all the angels and creatures that he accordingly sits at the right hand of God. That is, that he is King and Lord over all that belongs to God, whether it be in heaven, whether it be in hell, whether it be on earth. For this reason, Luther says, he can help me. He can help you and all believers in need, in defiance of all our adversaries and enemies with Satan being right up there as number one adversary and enemy, right? Luther wasn't just making this up to help us feel good. When the Bible makes statements that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, it is affirming that he has equal status to the Father within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's take it a, few, a look at a few Bible verses that, that reveal this very clearly. Hebrews 1, 3-4, He is radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. The majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's a lot of power. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Peter 3.22 Who? Jesus, gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, Jesus is the name above all names. It is why we end our prayers in the name of Jesus. He's in charge. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Because he aids us, he comforts us, he saves us from our sins. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers, not always in the way that we want him to, Because he's in charge. Parents, have you ever had kids ask you to have something? And you say, no, you can't have it. Why? Because I'm in charge. I know what's best. Jesus is in charge. He knows what is best for us. And that doesn't mean life is going to be easy. I'm looking out and I'm seeing people who have suffered, who have lost loved ones, who right now, sitting where you are, something's hurting. But see, that's what happened when the world was broken by sin. But that's not God's fault. God's not the one who broke things up. He made the perfect world. We're the ones who brought sin into it. But God loves us so much that he sent his son to make that relationship right again. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding with all power and all glory till he returns again. Jesus tells us exactly something very unique at the beginning of his ministry in Mark when he talks about the kingdom, this power. Well, so so who, he's, who is he the king of? Well, he's the king and lord and lords of the kingdom kingdom of God but what's the kingdom of God Jesus is the kingdom of God so after he's baptized he goes to the wilderness is is tempted 40 days and 40 nights immediately in Mark he goes right into his ministry and this is the first thing that Jesus says he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God, Jesus, will indeed return to make all things new. The earth will no longer groan. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. No more pain. But until then, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, He governs, and he protects, and he preserves us from evil, from the devil, and his kingdom on earth, so that one day his kingdom may remain forever and ever. For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.